Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. We're going to take a jaunt through the New Testament. The New Testament, I figured we didn't need to spend as much time going into because most of you, if not all of you, are much more familiar with that than with the Old Testament. We are going to look at it in terms of the early church, why the books were written, what they were trying to accomplish with the early church, and as well as what is the Lord trying to accomplish through us and in us through the same words in the scriptures. We're going to be starting off with the gospel. Another word for gospel is good news. That's why we're called Good News Ministries. And what is the definition of good news? It's news that's too good not to share. So the first question, the first challenge for your day today is, is the gospel message good enough for you to be good news in the sense that it's too good not to share? How have you been sharing the good news? How have you been failing to share the good news? That's the challenge that God's presenting. How do we take what we've been learning to make a difference in our life and continue to allow the good news of the Old and New Testament to really enter into our lives, affect our lives, and be something that we share with others? Now, sharing with others does not necessarily mean it's taught where you would be teaching it to someone else. Maybe it's just in the context of teaching it to your children. Maybe it's in the context of a neighbor or someone else uh, that you know who's not a regular churchgoer. And the Lord gives you an opportunity to share some of your wisdom and knowledge that you've gained on your faith journey as a way of inviting them back to church or a way of encouraging them to open up their own Bibles. Most likely, what God is going to be asking of each of us is to share the good news without using words to speak it, just by the way we live the good news. And if we truly believe it is good news, our lives show the joy that comes from it being good. I mean, when we come out of seeing a really good movie, we're happy, we're bubbly, we go and tell other people, you've got to go to that movie, it's really good. Do we come out of Mass every Sunday with that same attitude? Do we come out of a session of reading some scriptures, Bible meditation time? Do we come out of that with the same kind of enthusiasm? Remember the definition of enthusiasm is what? In God. In God. If we are truly in God, if we are truly enthusiastic, people will see God in us. They may not know that's who they're seeing, but somewhere along the line they'll come up to you and say, gee, you sure are a bubbly person, or gee, you seem never to be bothered by things the way other people get bothered by things. And that's your open door to use words to share why things make a difference. But first and foremost, it comes from the way you are exuding the good news in your life, doing what Jesus tells us to do, letting what scriptures all the way from Genesis to Revelation, letting what it does to your life be visible to others. Because it changes you. If scriptures don't change us, what's the point of reading it? In order to live the good news and share the good news, we've got to continue to immerse ourselves in scriptures and immerse ourselves in the learning process, the growing process. 
And a great way to do that, there's many ways. I suggest spending time each day, 15 minutes. If you try more than that, you'll become overwhelmed and quit after a while. But 15 minutes each day reading scripture. Don't start with Genesis and read all the way to Revelation. You probably won't make it unless you've got a lot of determination. Just spend a little bit of time and either use a concordance or index to pick a topic that's of interest to you and read scriptures on that. There are Bible study materials. There are good Catholic ones that gives you daily readings from scripture with little meditations, little commentaries. Keep it going by some means. And one of, I think, the most effective, easiest to do, most enjoyable ways to keep going and growing in Scripture is by being part of a small Christian community. If your parish has a Bible study group that meets weekly, join that. If your parish has a small Christian community that's centered on Scriptures, join that. In that small Christian community, you are in a faith-sharing experience. And if you've ever been uncomfortable sharing your faith or sharing something about God with somebody else, this loosens you up and this enables you and empowers you. It helps you learn and feel comfortable with sharing from yourself what the Lord means to you or what you've learned about scriptures or whatever. Now I'd like to start our journey through the New Testament. We're going to touch briefly on the Gospels. I'm not going to spend much time there because... I think those are probably the books of the Bible you're most familiar with. Of the four Gospels, each one has its own style. And some of them leave out some important stories that other ones have. They don't all match up exactly because each author had a different purpose and a different audience in mind for writing. Mark was the first one written. It was written about in the 60s probably after the birth of Jesus just before Jerusalem was conquered by the Romans. The tension, the atmosphere was very high. Let's, let's for a moment connect ourselves back to the story of the Israelites and their growth and their heading towards the Messiah. God preparing them, God calling them. Let's remember where we left off yesterday in the Old Testament. The Israelites keep turning away from God over and over again. They get conquered they get so conquered that there's only a remnant left. And they're deported. Then they're allowed to come back to their homeland. And they begin to rebuild and they try to do things right this time. But they still don't have the Holy Spirit available to everyone. So they still keep failing. They still keep struggling. Not as bad as they had before. Because they've learned a lot from the exile. But they still keep failing and struggling and, and turning back to God. And, of course, we know what happened when Jesus was there. A lot of them didn't recognize who Jesus was. So, as a whole, the Jewish community, some of them had a powerful conversion when they experienced the presence of Jesus among them. But, as a whole, the Jewish community continued their struggle of trying to turn towards God and failing and trying to turn back towards God and failing again. The Romans conquer Jerusalem Jerusalem falls. It no longer is its own power with its own king, its own authority. Rome destroys it. Rome takes over it. You know from Jesus' day that Rome was already a presence there, was already a controlling influence there. And as their power and their stronghold on Jerusalem and Palestine is growing, 
the tension among the Jewish people is increasing. For those who did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah are becoming more and more desperate for that Messiah to come. This is why when Jesus was there, they were so desperate for their Messiah to come to deliver them from Rome that their focus was on, we need a Messiah who will conquer Rome and set us free from Rome. We need a military leader like the judges of old. We need a king who can unite us and send us to war against Rome and conquer Rome like they did in the old days. And that was their area of experience. That was what they knew about. That's what they were looking for. And when Jesus seemed to be this this dynamic, charismatic speaker who had a lot of authority in the way he spoke, a lot of them said, maybe this is our deliverer. The Messiah we've been promised and we've been waiting for and hoping for and praying for for all these years. And with the tension, the oppression increasing from Rome, we need this now. So they tried to make Jesus to be this kind of deliverer. That's what they knew to look for. That's what they were focused on. That's what they expected Jesus to be. That's partly what Judas was caught up with and what motivated him to turn Jesus in because Jesus wasn't being a true Messiah in his mind. Maybe if the high priest spoke to him, maybe the high priest could straighten him out and Jesus would come to his senses and do what he was called to do. That was going on in Judas's mind. And of course, when it turned out different than the way he expected and he realized the gravity of what he had done, we know how that devastated him and what that did to him. So as the years passed after Jesus' death, the Jewish people thought they had their Messiah. Turned out he didn't do anything to set them free from Rome. And the tension is continuing to grow. Now little communities of people in the new way, which is what they called it originally, it was still considered Judaism, but a new way of Judaism. It wasn't yet really reaching out to the Gentiles. Not very much. It started, but it was gradual. Someone decided that with all this tension increasing towards Rome and all this looking for the Messiah who would set them free from Rome, something needed to be written down by someone who knew a lot about Jesus that could be copied and sent around as a witnessing tool to whatever group of people or individuals would be willing to hear the truth. So Mark wrote the first gospel as a way of pointing people to Jesus. And he put in just the basic information. The later gospel writers added more. If you want to know which gospel to read from cover to cover as a goal, to read a gospel through. If you want to read a gospel to get just a quick overview, an important overview with lots of deep meaning in it, but nonetheless a quick overview of Jesus and what his mission was about, read the book of Mark. On the other hand, if you want to get more of a sense of what kind of love Jesus brought to the world, what his love message was about, how Jesus cared and how he revealed the Father's caring. And love is the focus of what you want to get out of reading a gospel from cover to cover. Read the book of John. Luke was written for the Gentile people. It's also a good book for women to read to feel good about ourselves because Luke 
spent a lot more emphasis on the importance and value of women than any of the other gospel readings. It shows how much Jesus cared for women and how important they were, which went against the way society was at the time. Matthew was written to the Jewish people. So the way Matthew writes is in terminology and pointing out various things that will evangelize Jewish people. It speaks their language. It speaks to what's important to them. Luke speaks to what's important to Gentiles. For example, the Gentiles, much more so than the Jewish people, were rich and powerful. So Luke, in his infancy narrative, when he's talking about who visited baby Jesus, he has the shepherds, the poor people, the poor of the Jewish people visiting Jesus. So that it's a way of witnessing to the rich Gentiles that Jesus came not just for the rich, but also for the poor. Don't feel that you're high and mightier than the poor people. Don't think you're superior to them because Jesus came for them too. And by contrast, Matthew, who was writing to the oppressed, subdued, poor Jewish people, he put that the visitors were the magi, kings, rich people. Foreigners, Gentiles, in other words. So that Matthew was saying, Jesus didn't come just for you Jewish people. He came for the whole world. And he didn't just come for you poor people. He came for the whole world. Now, genealogies in the Bible are boring, right? Let me show you how interesting it really can be. Turn to Luke 3, verse 38. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Well, let's start with 23. I'm not going to read through all this, but you can scan over and see it's a bunch of names. And in between the names are the words, the son of. The genealogy of Jesus. When Jesus began his ministry, this is verse 23, he was about 30 years of age. He was the son, as was thought, in other words, in the flesh, so to speak. He was the son of Joseph, who was the son of, etc., But look down all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 38, who Luke makes a point that his lineage goes back to. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, remember Seth? The son of Adam, the son of God. Luke, speaking to the Gentiles, is making a point that because Jesus goes all the way back to Adam, the first man from whom the whole world came, since Jesus goes back to Adam... Therefore, Jesus came for the whole world, not just for the Jewish people. And not only does he go back to Adam, he goes back to God. Adam is the son of God. Luke is saying that the very first ancestor of Jesus is God. He's also making the point to all these people who are interested in genealogy that all of us, our family line goes back to God. God is not only our creator, God is our father. We are made in his image. So there's a subtle point being made here. That Jesus was made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. By contrast, let's look at Matthew. The first chapter, the first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This genealogy goes in a different direction. 
whereas in Luke, it starts with present day for, the, for Jesus and goes back in time. This one starts with the origins of Jesus and goes to the present day. So it says here in verse 1 that Jesus was the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is much more interested, because he's speaking to the Jewish people, in saying that Jesus goes back to the fathers of the Israelites, the important patriarchs of that nation. Going back to David is a reminder that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. And going back to Abraham proves to the Jewish people that Jesus is a true Israelite, is a true Jew. Remember, Abraham was the one that started that covenant with the circumcision. Matthew is also making the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. In other words, to the Jewish people of Matthew's time, this was an invitation to recall and read the promises that were made to Abraham and the promises that were made to David and to look at it in the light of Jesus being the fulfillment of those promises. It adds a greater depth to what those promises were. It's a challenge to look at those promises with a different twist, a different angle. Instead of just looking at the expected Messiah as being someone who would deliver them the way an army would. Remember after Jesus' resurrection, before his ascension, when these two guys are walking down the road to Emmaus, all discouraged because Jesus had been killed? And in disguise, Jesus appears to them, walks along with them, and relates to them how all the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to what happened to Jesus. Because they had been thinking in a certain frame of mind, and Jesus was inviting them to look at the same promises, the same scriptures, with that different twist, that different angle, so they could see the truth of what God had really intended by those promises. The same thing that Matthew was trying to do with that genealogy. The Jewish people who did not convert to the new way, to the Christian way, never did accept that Jesus was the Messiah because they kept looking for that other kind of Messiah. This converted some people, but there were some people who did not convert. And those people then just continued to reject what was written down. And therefore, it's of no value to them except to look at what some great teacher has said. They see Jesus as a prophet or teacher, but not the Messiah and not the Son of God. And by the way, there are a growing number of what's called Messianic Jews. Uh, One of the members of the small Christian community that I belong to up north had been raised a Jew. One of her best friends invited her into the faith journey that led into the Catholic Church and This friend belonged to our small Christian community and invited her to come to the small Christian community. And that's how I and the rest of our group entered into her journey. And it was really quite an exciting privilege to see her go through the RCIA process and then attend her baptism and confirmation and first Eucharist on the Easter Vigil Mass. That was the first time I ever went to an Easter Vigil Mass. And boy, was it awesome. Okay, let's turn now to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is really a continuation from the book of Luke. It was written by the same man. And you'll see in the first chapter, first verse, that Luke says, In the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with, etc. The first book is the the gospel of Luke. 
and he is continuing the story. The Gospels focuses on Jesus, and Acts the focus is on the church, how the church brought Jesus to the world after the ascension. Well, he starts the book of Acts with repeating the story of the ascension, starting with verse 6. But before we get down there, take a look at verse 1 again. Theophilus probably was not an actual individual person. The name Theophilus means one who loves God. So the book of Acts is written to anybody who loves God. The book of Acts, after making this little introduction, tells the story again of the ascension of Jesus. It then goes into chapter 1, verse 13 talks about the very first community. The book of Acts is filled with the communities that are growing, all about how they grew, how they got started, how they struggled. The rest of, almost the rest of the New Testament are letters usually written to these various communities. But the very first community were those people who waited for the descent of the Holy Spirit following Jesus' orders that he gave them right before he ascended. It tells you here, starting with 13, who these people were. They entered the city, Jerusalem, and went to the upper room where they were staying. And it lists the apostles. And then it says in 14, All these devoted themselves with one accord to prayer, together with some women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, meaning relatives. Brothers is a loose, broad term describing relatives. Verse 15. During those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers. There was a group of about 120 persons in one place. So the first community is about 120 people who have been following Jesus and who came back together after the resurrection, after Jesus began revealing himself to the people, showing them proof that he was alive and that he was calling them to a special mission. And all those who heard that call and were rejoicing in the resurrection stuck together as a community, the first small Christian community, although 120 isn't exactly small. Yeah, can you imagine 120 people squishing in here? And they didn't have deodorant in those days. In chapter 2, starting with verse 1, it's now Pentecost. Pentecost is a festival that had started centuries before celebrating the Jewish Feast of Weeks, W-E-E-K-S, Weeks. It was originally called the Feast of Wheat Harvest. They celebrated the beginning of the wheat harvest. And at this point in the story, at this time in Jewish history, it is now becoming the celebration of God's covenants. Now the covenants are beginning with the Christian, this brand new group of community. This celebration of covenants, God's covenants, is going to take on a much, much deeper meaning because the new covenant that Jesus brought is really going to take effect now. Remember what covenant means? I am your God and you are my people. And the way this is about to become very real for them is because in receiving the Holy Spirit, when he descends upon them, in receiving the fullness of the Holy Spirit to the same extent that every prophet, Elijah, Moses, all the biggest of them, the full extent that they had the Holy Spirit in them, everybody is now going to get in them. And this is what solidifies, I am your God and you are my people. 
this is what makes it very real, tangible, experiential, life-changing. And if we try to live without the Holy Spirit, we are not in a full covenant with God. The word Pentecost, by the way, is from the Greek word that means 50th day, because it's 50 days after Passover. It was a Jewish holiday that came 50 days after the Jewish holiday of Passover. With the result of the descent of the Holy Spirit, well, we know what happened. Peter gave this speech that everybody heard in their own language. Go to chapter 2, verse 42. One of the immediate results, aside from tongues and exhortation, preaching powerfully, this little scared, wimpy fisherman was now a powerful preacher. Aside from that, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the communal life, Christian community, to the breaking of the bread, the beginning of Mass, and to the prayers, a committed prayer life. All came upon everyone, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, that communal life. They would sell their property and possessions and divide them among all according to each one's need. I think we've lost a little bit of something 2,000 years later. Every day they devoted themselves to every day. We talk about small Christian communities, meaning once a week. They got together every day. They still had jobs. They still had houses to clean. They still had children to raise. But they were so full of the Holy Spirit and enthusiasm that they devoted themselves to being together in the temple area and to breaking bread in their homes. They got together to share Eucharist in their homes. The agape meal, it was called. Agape meaning the love that's expressed by that covenant relationship with God. They ate their meals with exaltation. Every meal was a party. And with sincerity of heart, praising God. See, at this party, they sang. They partied with their whole beings, including their, their voices in song. Praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to the number those who were being saved. Elsewhere in the book of Acts, it describes a little bit deeper what was happening here. The love that they were giving to each other and receiving from each other in that community was so obvious. It was so out front and in the open and so life-changing and so helpful to those around them that many were converted into Christianity by the love they saw in this community. We share Christ by the way we live. People are evangelized not by our words, but by the way we love. If you know somebody who's away from the church, love them into the church. But that takes living this kind of community life with them, where they see love exuding from you because of the way you give of yourself, of your possessions, of your prayers, of your heart that's been transformed by the Holy Spirit. We can't do this without the Holy Spirit. We are selfish without the Holy Spirit. We are afraid without the Holy Spirit. We are overly busy with our time without the Holy Spirit. We don't know which to cut back on time-wise in order to have more time to be in community without the Holy Spirit. We need the discernment that comes from the Holy Spirit. On our own, we get things all messed up. We set our priorities wrong. We hang on to our possessions. We don't understand how somebody could sell 
They had an extra house. They sold it and gave the money, distributed it among those who didn't have as much. Without the Holy Spirit, we don't see or understand why we should even get together to go to daily mass, let alone to get together afterwards for breakfast, to party together, to praise God together. All of their attitude changed. The attitude that emboldened them to preach, to share the good news with their words, and to share it with their lives. It all changed with the descent of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 1, begins a story that shows how the same works that Jesus did, the apostles or the Christians did. In this case, a crippled beggar is cured. The book of Acts is filled with supernatural miracles. Jesus said in John 14:12 that if you believe in me, and believing in him means doing what he did. If we don't do what he did, if we don't walk in his footsteps, we're not really believing in him. We think, well, if you're convenient, I'll believe in that. But where you get inconvenient, Jesus, I don't believe in you. When Jesus said in John 14:12, if you believe in me, he said, you will do the same works I do and greater than these. It's proven in the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. It's a good story, easy to read. It reads kind of like a novel in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of deep theological points that you need someone to help you interpret. It tells you the story of the early church and some of the individuals in those church. St. Paul plays a big role in there after his conversion. We hear about his struggles, his travels, his arrests, his persecutions. But there's other persecutions in there that are seen too. St. Stephen's story is told in there, how he was the first martyr because he was just so full of God. You know, he was just so full of exuding the presence of God, the love of God that his face glowed. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit GNM.org today.